Today on the Tim Manor Podcast Show, we've got Dr. Hannah Cullen. What are you doctor of? I'm a doctor of counselling psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, been quite a journey to get to that point, to be fair. So a lot of years of studying. Um, but How many years? How long does it take you to get to where you are now? I think it was 10 years just to get to the point of completing my doctorate. So we did an undergrad degree, then a year's experience, um, which was really necessary for the next stage. And did a master's and then bit the bullet and went straight for the doctorate. Why? <laughs> which was three years. Why did you choose? I knew I always had a vision for myself. and Always? From a, from a young age, which I feel very lucky to have had that because I know even working with like young people that are 16, 17 and they feel like they need to have life figured out and it's such a hard thing to know. Um, but I would say I had a very good sense of what I wanted to do at about 17, 18. Wow. <laughs> I think I've always been um, very internal, um, quite self-aware. Uh, that doesn't mean I've not made mistakes. Or... Like a witch? No, I think just very... Um, very attuned to people and I think um, I hit a point in my life when I was probably 18 and I noticed a bit of a pattern where lots of people were coming to me to like I guess to, in a place that was maybe felt safe for them to talk like to like a witch <laughs> that's what happened but I think have not have you not thought of that before the spiritual side of it that you have got that side of you yeah not not in so much in a witchy sense but yeah. I think I'm I, not talking about I a bad do, witch I'm talking about like yeah, a white ex- witch exactly. that people will turn yeah. to yeah I think sage like advice. spirituality I think that's a big part of um you know being able to connect with people and having maybe I, I do believe that people are naturally maybe more empathic um than others and that, that's that can be a good thing and that can be a bad thing as well and actually I think what I've learned is actually you really have to learn to harness that empathy that you have because if you feel other people's emotions and you take other people's energy um how do you difficult. at 18 though put boundaries around yourself that people are coming to you offloading them yeah. how did, at that time did you know how to do that at that time no hadn't a clue <laughs> so people are just taking energy from you. Yeah, I think I got, um, there was probably quite a few relationships in my life that was um, not very balanced, maybe you would say. Um, and it took a long time to learn how to be okay with realising what I needed um, from my own personal relationships and to be able to walk away from some difficult relationships as well that you know were not serving me. Because I think when you have a lot of empathy naturally uh, you don't want to hurt other people you know and it's actually very difficult to walk away and do what's right for you um, when you know that maybe the other person might be hurt but actually in essence that's not your responsibility your responsibility is to figure out what you need and to follow that so at 18 you're like I know what I want to do I knew I wanted to help people I think that's that's what really stood out. I knew I wanted to try to make a difference to people who were struggling. And I, I just very early learned the value of having someone in your life that you can turn to when you're in trouble. Um, and that was, that was probably through 
my parents actually um probably really in particular my dad <laughs> someone that um I just I know even actually on the way here I was like quite nervous coming and I thought oh, maybe I'll just ring my dad and I didn't need to because I I had an internal dad you know to tell me you know that I was going to be okay what do you mean by that the internal part yeah the internal dad what, yeah. what do you mean by that um so we internalize um our experiences from people you know particularly from a young age so if you have you know a very supportive parent um somebody who sort of will hold you through your mistakes um and your challenges in life Mm. you know you you learn to internalize that it becomes part of your world you know and it adds to your resilience um maybe helps with anxiety things like that but Equally, if you can flip that on its head, if you've grown up with a very critical parent mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily a, a critical parent isn't uh, a bad parent. Sometimes parents can think they're doing the right thing. Exactly. But, yeah. yeah. By like pointing you in the right direction. But actually, you know, the child hears criticism. You can internalize that and you develop what we call an inner critic. So it's that voice of maybe I can't do this or maybe I should just go home or you know, somebody else would be better than I would be at this. So that's that inner critic or inner worrier. And we all have one anyway, even if you have grown up with that very supportive parents because life has a way of knocking the stuffing out of you sometimes. But how do you create that inner parent that's a, that's a, a sounding board for goodness to say you're going to be all right? How do you create that if you've never had one? That's such a good question. Um a big part of the work that I do actually when I when I do work with clients because I a lot of clients that will come into the picture with me will have this very harsh inner critic and largely it can come from the early life experiences it may not necessarily be a parent it could be really difficult childhood adverse experiences like bullying at school where Mm. you you start to develop this inner dialogue of not being good enough or being full of shame and not feeling connected to other people and it's a really difficult place to be in mm. so they're they're the type of people I see in in my clinic who that I work with therapeutically and how you learn to to change that or challenge that definitely takes time it's not a quick fix because you have to think of how long you've been experiencing that in your life um working with somebody to challenge that involves bringing out that that inner critic and evoking anxiety and yeah well yeah do you know you you could say maybe because actually how we do that in in the therapeutic approach that I do is we do it through chair work and chair work where we split the person so we take the inner critic and we put it in a chair Hmm? and we take the real self and we put it in the other chair we facilitate this dialogue between the two parts. It's not, it's very, very powerful. Witchy. Yeah, sounds very witchy. Well, w- the science behind it is that we are evoking the real emotion. So rather than just talking about how you feel, what we're trying to do is evoke live emotion, like trigger the brain into experiencing a little bit of anxiety, not too much, or trigger the brain into feeling sadness, you know, a sense of loss or a sense of grief of and, and help the person to learn what they should have had and what they need. And you facilitate this dialogue between these two parts. It's very prescriptive. It's um, 
very powerful, as I said. Oh, you actually physically got two chairs out? Yeah. Right, so it's not metaphorical. You've actually got two chairs yeah. out. Yeah. And are you getting the person to sit in one and then flip over and then talking exactly in the other Exactly that. Exactly that. Holy yeah. shit. I think it's probably the most powerful piece of therapeutic work that I've ever witnessed. Um, you know, that that's just my preference of therapeutic approach when it comes to dealing with certain issues that clients face but if somebody comes to me with this this belief that they are not good enough or they are insufficient in some way as a human being absolutely chair work is insufficient is, as a human being yeah it's so sad to think that, that is the sad people, that isn't it yeah and that so many people feel like that so many people are thinking that yeah I think the people that I do get to sit with are incredibly brave yeah. and very courageous. To even look at that. Yeah. Part of them. Exactly that. Yeah. To, 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 but, you know, I think it brings a sense of space between those two parts. Is the client can say, yeah, do you know what? This isn't me. That's this voice isn't me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Powerful, that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It is when you see the emotion the actual transformation. And- yeah. And what we're trying to do is move the client from this place of experiencing difficult, painful emotions that ordinarily, you know, you can't go through life feeling these live emotions of shame, sadness, hurt, pain, trauma on a day-to-day basis because, you know, people have responsibilities in life. They have to get up, they have to go to work, they have to take care of children, whatever it might be. We can't have them active all the time, so we have to find ways to push them down. And that's when things become really difficult. Then we start to see things like depression and anxiety. So moving people out of that space, we're trying to transform those difficult emotions to more um, healing or soothing emotions because we know they are like the the antidote, if you like, for the painful ones. So things like self-compassion, empowerment, a sense of self-acknowledgement, perhaps like maybe you didn't have as a child or maybe you you don't have in your life currently but if we can activate that in you that's very empowering can people heal themselves without crying um i feel like any breakthrough that i've had has always been yeah. through a cry to release it can I think... you can you do that without crying I certainly think there's ways, you know, crying is a, is a response to an emotion. It's, it's something that you're experiencing inside and it's a visual response. It's a visual release of what you're feeling. But I think crying is different for everybody. Um, and it more so comes down to how you process emotion. So if you are very, very, very tearful all of the time, you may be, feeling um under-regulated so it's hard to regulate your emotions people who tend to not cry at all even when they are experiencing sadness or pain or hurt um are maybe uh over-regulated so they everything's packed away very nicely and what we're trying to do is shift those patterns of of kind of how you process emotions um but yeah, <laughs> so I, I think there's different ways for people to experience emotions. Like you can, particularly for males who, in, in sessions, I absolutely have male clients who cry, just to, to say that. But um, it can be difficult, more difficult to maybe get them to that point. That's not the purpose of it, but it can be more difficult to get a male client to 
be tearful but you'll hear other things like they'll start to really slow down in how they're talking so the speech will be slower or the voice quality starts to change it might become more crackled and what's that what's that well they're indicators of feeling emotion just like crying so when we see tears we know a person is usually experiencing Mm -hmm. an emotion but there's other signs like the cracked voice or clearing the throat so because we get a bit of tension don't we when we start to feel anxiety or if we get upset Mm -hmm. things tend to slow down so there's there's other indicators um, and ways to experience and and move from a painful place to a better place um, without, without crying. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody's different, aren't they? In I how don't they. Know, I don't know. Yeah. I always just uh, I sort of associate crying with strength now, and for yeah. actually to heal something, you actually need to feel it, and to feel it, crying is involved in it. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think sometimes to. You have to go there to leave there. That's an expression that's kind of carried me through. Go there to leave there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. Like that. yeah, like that. Yeah. I might write that on the board afterwards. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's that naturally we we may want to avoid experiencing the difficult stuff. Um, but, you know, actually when you do, like what you say, you know, your emotional response is maybe naturally to cry and to really feel that. Because crying is incredibly powerful. Yeah. It is such a relief for the body in itself. It, it's you trying to regulate your emotion and make sense of everything that's going on. Such you, let, a powerful... Let's see if you can make sense of this. Right? Okay. I'll tell you a story. Okay. Right. So I went to boarding school ages 6 to 15. 6 to 15. Well, 7 to 15. Okay. I'll get expelled at 15. Yeah. Okay. Shock horror to got expelled. Brilliant. Right. <laughs> um, and what happened used to happen... I was around, before corporal punishment came in, I used to get in trouble for talking after lights out. Everybody did. And what they used to do was take me downstairs into the cellar and make me stand up in the cellar. And then just before they left, they used to turn the light off. And then they'd come back every 20, 30 minutes to make sure I'd not lie down and fallen asleep. And then they'd go again, turn the light off. They used to just, I used to stand there for hours. Right. So this was a, a punishment. So, yeah, this is a punishment for talking after lights out. This is before wow. corporal punishment, right? That's just the start of it, right? I What I got from that, I don't think I've dealt with that. Mm. And I don't know even know what that is. But one thing I've known is that I do very, very well stood alone in the dark. You and do? That was my Say that power. again? I do very, very well stood alone in the dark. Okay. I don't need people around me. I can get through really difficult situations in the dark okay and that's the power that i've taken from Mm -hmm. that experience but have i actually dealt with that i'm nearly stunned no i wasn't because that's barbaric yeah Yeah, the boarding school fucked me up right i do not recommend it to anybody Mm. the abandonment issues that i've got and trust issues that i've got i've had throughout my life because of it are ridiculous right i work on it every single day for myself Mm -hmm. but there's things when i'm doing meditation now just keep cropping up and it was that and i forgot about it it only recently Mm -hmm. i was like oh my shit and god i need to look at this Okay, yeah. It was good that you come in and I just thought I'll talk to you about it because it's so fresh. Yeah. And thinking to myself, look, I've taken a strength from it. 
I do good on my own. When back's against the wall, I don't mm. need to rely on anybody. I do really well, right? Stood alone in the dark. But have I really, have I really looked at that properly by just saying that? Or have I just made a, a power of it and just moved on? Do I need to look at that now? I think it depends how you f- you feel that affects you. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's experiences of stress and traumatic situations can be very different. And, it you know, that depends on who you are and, and also the people that you have around you. Mm-hmm. But if that's something that feels very difficult for you, then, you know, there's, there's no harm in looking at that. Obviously, what we would never want to do is re-traumatize you because, you know, when you think of the consequence of, because you were talking, you know, when it was lights out, the consequence of that's that ridiculous. punishment is, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I don't even, I don't think I even have words, you know, to yeah. think. And are you feeling that now? No. 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 Okay. Okay. I think, I'd, I think if I did feel it, mm. I don't, again, I think my voice going, I probably start crying about it. It don't trigger me, okay. but I want you to make sure with you, have I actually, am I all right with that? I think we'd we'd probably need a, a longer conversation oh, for us to right, kind of to see if it has really affected me or not. Yeah, and to, I mean you've brought it up here today, yeah. so it sounds like it's really important to you in I a think way. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Have you been holding that kind of in anticipation um, for today? Not really. No, it just it seemed a, a good place to actually mm. talk about it. I mm. think you know, apart from this podcast and having you mm. and a lot of the people to let's talk, man. Let's you know, yeah, yeah. Can share. We all need to talk. What's interesting about it is that you've taken like a metaphorical lesson from it that yeah. you do really well on your own mm. in the dark. Like, what does that mean? It means I don't need to rely on anybody, okay. which is really, really powerful mm-hmm. for me. I okay. don't, I don't need acceptance off other people towards it. I can stand here on my own two feet, mm-hmm. and I can do it without you. Okay. But I don't know if that's not served me sometimes because I suffer my heart and kind of fucking don't need you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think you even need me to answer that. You've just yeah, answered no, that no, part no, yourself, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so I think softening my heart's been a big one, but I wondered, I just wondered, mm-hmm. have I really dealt with that? Well, what's that piece of um, not needing anyone? Like, is that... When you say sometimes it doesn't serve you, is that something that you notice in your life? Um, yeah, I feel like maybe I push people away um, just because of like my mum sending me to what's it when I was seven. That abandonment of that has really affected me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then these things on top of putting in a cellar and I can stand on my own. I don't need my mum. I don't need you. I don't need anybody to watch it. It's really toughened. Mm-hmm. When you think of you as that child, though, yeah, you needed all of the opposite yeah, things. All of the opposite, yeah. yeah. Needed love because I went into the gym um, about a couple of months back, mm-hmm. walking into the toilet because I'm doing a lot of internal work. I'm still asking a lot of questions. Okay. As I walked into the toilet, I went to myself. You know what, little Tim, we're going to be all right. And I just went in the gym, just like crying, yeah. crying, and crying. I was like, okay. "Who yeah. know what can see me right now?" It was weird. What's like that piece of little Tim that's the the other side of you almost you know when I spoke about the little Tim that needed yeah. love man and yeah. just your inner say, child look, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah I think that's amazing that you're doing that because 
everybody has that inner child it doesn't matter what age you are you know that that child is within you and if you can recognize that you've maybe grown up and that child has not had your if your if your needs have not been met in the way that they should like our fundamental needs as a child yeah. they don't change actually just because we become safe, an adult Hannah, i think the word safe i've never felt safe yeah and usually that cor- corresponds to trauma yeah. like when you feel unsafe you know mm. th- that is absolutely your basic need as a child is this sense of safety sense of unconditional love mm-hmm. a sense of feeling validated and acknowledged these are all those kind of corresponding needs that we talk about when we feel abandoned, trauma, hurt, like this what, what loneliness. Is, what, what is trauma? Because I had such a big thing with it, of mm. like associating my trauma with like, say a friend who found his brother um, hung at the bottom of the stairs. Okay. I was like, look, fucking hell, that's trauma. Mm-hmm. What the shit that I've got fucking mm-hmm. going on, these little things. What, what is it and what is it to different people? So trauma is definitely a word that gets thrown about quite a bit. But trauma is essentially anything, again, as an individual, it's bespoke. It's how you experience something that's happened. So it's anything that takes you from a place of where you should feel safe to not. So that can be traumatic for somebody. You know, smaller things can be very traumatic for somebody versus you know, a, a huge ex- life experience may be less traumatic. Like they used to say um, divorce was extremely traumatic and absolutely it has huge impacts and causes ripple effects. But actually, for some people, divorce brings relief. It doesn't bring a sense of trauma. Right. So everybody experiences trauma very differently. And that's why it's so important. If If you do feel like you're holding something or your past is shaping you know how you interact with the world or your relationships like like what you said you maybe push people away when you you know maybe they want to get closer to you but actually you don't really know how to do that because you've never had that experience potentially in the past so you know it's it's understanding how trauma shows up in your life even if you have somewhat put it to bed you can carry it and it, it can be re-triggered and it can come out in your relationships or in your work or, you know, it's understanding how it potentially affects you moving forward. It can actually be really empowering, you know, to to process it and, and understand it and, and help you to lead a more fulfilling life and feel more connected with other people and feel more connected in relationships and family you do the two chair thing with like stuff like that as well. Does it always come down to the two chair thing? Uh, not always. It depends what people are um, presenting with. Um, so I do do a lot of work with ADHD as well. Let's talk about it. Yeah. What the fuck is ADHD <laughs> and do I have ADHD? So we can't diagnose no. you today. Um so I can't self-diagnose myself. No, and no. This is what's really important. This is such an important message, is because it, it's not new. There's sort of is, is this a new a new thing? This is not new. This is you know ADHD has been picked up and sort of very early recognised. This the the stereotypical symptoms that we talk about very early recognised since the 1700s. Like that's how far back this goes. 
Um, and it wasn't until probably the 1960s, 1970s, where things really started to kick on a notch. So this isn't new. There's a, ho- a huge, there's an abundance of research around ADHD. But essentially what it is, is uh, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. So it basically means that if somebody has a diagnosis of ADHD, how they how their brain functions is slightly different to somebody who does not have ADHD. So that can lead to how they interact with the world. Maybe if things can be a bit more challenging or they may see things a little bit different. But yeah, essentially that's what it is. And I know there's a big question now for so many people, like, do I have this? Do I not? Because there's so much information out there at the moment. Right? And how do you find out if you have or not? Is it, so it's not just because I'm a, I was a naughty kid that now... So that's the the kind of stereotypical piece, yeah. which is people tend to think that ADHD is the naughty boy in yeah. school causing problems, being problematic in the classroom, doing a dance on the table or, yeah. you know, but what we do know now is that's not the case. Um, you do tend to see more hyperactivity in boys, but actually girls and women have been immensely missed. What's the, is, it, does it affect women differently to men? Yes, we are seeing differences. And what are so those? Essentially, the, the, the main components are still there with ADHD. So you, you may see the inattentiveness, you may see the hyperactivity and the impulsiveness, although you, we do tend to see the hyperactivity more so in boys. But for girls, there tends to be this much more internalized piece um, around internalizing the dialogue, the rumination, the continuous layer of thoughts. But girls are very good at masking. So while a boy might have to leave his seat, a girl may be able to mask that a bit better in the classroom. So it tends to be more silent um, but you may see it in other places like the emotional dysregulation where girls find it really difficult maybe if they have a diagnosis of ADHD to to regulate their emotions and also hormones play a big part in that as well yeah and there's there is more and more research coming out and I think the curve is a little bit behind we're a bit behind the curve in terms of um exploring for girls and women why it looks different and how hormones play a part in this but certainly it's on the rise which is a good thing and more girls are now and women are being diagnosed which is is good news how do you get diagnosed what's the process so yeah I think that's a super important question because I'm not actually sure that many people do know the answer to this and Basically, if you need to have a diagnosis for ADHD or you think you have a diagnosis of ADHD, you have to have that confirmed by somebody who is very experienced within the area. So usually a psychiatrist or a psychologist and somebody, even that said, somebody who has experience working with ADHD and other kind of disorders as well for at least five years so that's sort of the the standard which is problematic now right because there's five years before you get a for five years so they must have experience for at least five years in understanding adhd and different disorders because adhd very rarely comes on its own very rarely what do you mean 
So it's called like comorbidity. I don't know if, you, if you've heard that word. So, so basically what that means is 80% of people who have a diagnosis of ADHD will have something else at play, such as an anxiety disorder or such as depression or maybe a learning disability. So it very rarely comes along its own. So you need to be sitting with somebody who's able to diagnose ADHD, but that they can also differentiate between what's ADHD and what's an anxiety disorder or what's ADHD and what's depression or is dyslexia at play your practitioner doesn't have to have huge competencies in all of the areas because you know the comorbidity is is very vast but you do need to have somebody comorbidity what's that mean it's when another condition runs alongside something else so ADHD might be the primary diagnosis but maybe a person might be on the spectrum for autism or some of those other disorders that we mentioned so you need to be sat with somebody who <laughs> has a good idea of so there's not a test you can go on online put in a few things that i don't do very well in social crowds and stuff and then yeah you've got adhd i'm not no. saying i've done yeah, that yeah 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 but loads okay. of people have yeah. and do you know it's it's how you how you interpret that i'm not saying that it's a bad thing i think if you're curious about this and you think this might fit then you know trust your gut and yeah maybe those screening tests might be useful in trying to educate you around what the symptoms are and what fits but it's not enough so even now for professionals who are diagnosing adhd we won't send out a screening test because a client can just say oh my god that's me that's me that's me I have ADHD why is it so important because you're really passionate about this aren't you yeah why, yeah why is it so important to you um you know a lot of people say oh I just fell into things yeah and I sort of did fall into this but it very suddenly started to make a lot of sense to me so I was working with um people in addiction And I don't think I had one client at the time that didn't meet the diagnosis for ADHD. So there's another comorbidity. So you might have ADHD and substance abuse or substance misuse. And I got really curious about it. And the more I started to understand um, about ADHD, I started to realize that it was in my family. So my extended family, there's high levels of ADHD, you might say. and it started to make a lot of sense. It started to make a lot of sense to me um, about things that I was seeing and, you know, certain kind of people that I was coming across in life that were finding life incredibly difficult to do. They were having really difficult time with their relationships. They may have been addicted to substances like cocaine or alcohol, and they, they just were not functioning. And actually, when they have this diagnosis of ADHD, things start to make sense. They really do. And that was actually what was so powerful for me as a as a clinician was seeing the relief that this diagnosis was bringing to people. Like the it, the diagnosis itself was therapeutic. And they're not crazy or mad or whatever. Exactly, like, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or also this piece of like, you know, you you do see a lot of people with ADHD that have struggled through school and maybe they've been held back a year or you know teachers putting them out of the classroom or they're not able to do their homework and they're filled with anxiety because of that but just this sense of like 
I'm not stupid or actually I'm not lazy there's there's an answer here as to why I've been struggling through life but the great thing is I think what's rewarding for me as to to why I want to continue to work in this area is that it is a highly treatable disorder so the response to treatment is is fantastic a lot of the time how long does the diagnosis take is it individual to everybody mm-hmm. yeah can it take yeah. a day can it take an hour what, what's the... yeah great yeah I think that's a good question so for a diagnosis to happen and for it to be accurate and thorough there should be an investigation if you like so let's say for example you decided you wanted to explore a diagnosis for ADHD we would think about maybe who's in your life currently that could help you to give evidence of how they see you experience the world so maybe like a a really good friend or a partner or a parent um any school reports things like that so all of all of this is evidence so the thing about ADHD is it has to have been present in childhood it has to have been there so we need to go right back you cannot do that in just a quick assessment tick box, tick box questionnaire that is the most important information yeah. so what symptoms you are experiencing as an adult we then want to take that like take that lens and apply it to childhood and see where those symptoms there so it needs to be persistent and pervasive and it needs to be long standing you know it needs to be something that's significantly impairing your life so if you think about just that information you know ages, absolutely yeah yeah and it sh- and it should so like i think that the the kind of gold standard if you like is somebody who's experienced and know what they're doing they know what they're looking for and they're able to stretch out any other disorders maybe that might be at play is like no less than three hours for an assessment two to three hours for an assessment and and actually if you think if you think of somebody who might have ADHD it could be really difficult for them to sustain attention yeah yeah although when it is important to you people with ADHD tend to be able to focus for for quite a long time but yeah so you know are there levels of it where some have got it more Mm. than others where yeah I think we should be looking at is it weird how there's no information on this and I'm like I'm thinking I don't even know what I've never known what it was yeah that's it people are kind of saying like I have ADHD or I don't I think yeah I struggle to concentrate over a certain amount of time and then all of a sudden oh maybe I've got ADHD I'm just like no I just the fact that you can't be asked both people bore you (laughs) yeah so it needs to be interesting to sustain concentration but you're right it is kind of what we need to be looking at ADHD as is a spectrum disorder yeah so how much is the impairment affecting your (coughs) life you know is it to the point where you can't do you know daily tasks or you, you can't get to work and complete a task or you feel very distracted all of the time or you struggle to regulate your emotions or you're impulsive or you interrupt and it affects your relationships at work for example so it's the degree of the impairment you know and that that's what's really hard to see I think on social media at the moment is that everybody you know who who feels they might have ADHD may have it to different degrees this is people are pulling each other apart yeah. on social media to say, well, that's not what ADHD is, or this is what ADHD is. Actually, it's extremely different for everybody. That's what's important. 
when you say the gold standard, the gold standard is someone sitting with you for three hours, and then obviously it, it could take you like what six months or something to actually diagnose somebody properly. Well, it probably wouldn't take that long to be fair, but you know, if you think about people with ADHD, tend to need a little bit more time in sessions as well because they can use a lot of words to try and say something very succinct. It can be kind of difficult to pull all this this information together. We're trying to open this kind of Pandora's box, if you like, of what life has been like since childhood. And actually memory can be difficult as well for people with ADHD sometimes. So that's why having extra information like a report from a parent or school reports can be really invaluable. So it's going to take time, isn't it, for for somebody to uh, an assess for an assessment for the assessor to go away and and look through all this information and kind of pull it together and make sure it's meeting the criteria for for ADHD for that diagnosis. And I think that's what's empowering is actually the person sitting there going through all that information with you feeling validated, feeling heard. Yeah. That that in itself is is very powerful. What is what are the treatments then? What are, what are some of the treatments? So I th- I think the the kind of the main thing for somebody who might be looking into having a diagnosis is one make sure it's a proper diagnosis. So make sure it's with somebody who's experienced in the area. Two would be to kind of really delve into psychoeducation. So like educate yourself on what it is, like go to the right resources. Where are the right resources? So there, maybe actually I was thinking about this, how I would share some of the kind of the, the science and the, the resources that would be good for people to kind of look at. And maybe I'll put that on my Instagram or we can share we'll that together. To your Instagram, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are some brilliant websites. There are some really good ones. But again, you know, you want to make sure it's, resourced well and it's scientifically backed um there's brilliant academic papers but they're not easy to read right so I would say if you know somebody who can read an academic paper and you think this might fit take it to that person and say can you help me make sense of this or if you're working with a psychologist bring it and say I've seen this paper this sounds a little bit like me but I'm not really sure how to interpret it can you help me so just read broadly but reading from the right places. It's hard to read books if you do have ADHD. It can be difficult. So yeah. there's brilliant podcasts. I would say anything from Dr. Russell Berkeley. He's kind of the ADHD guru of the world, kind of internationally renowned, fantastic speaker. Anything from him is, is a really good place to start if you want to start at the top to learn. Um, and then thinking about, medication whether that's something that you are open to exploring and learning about what medication is it so i'm not a psychiatrist so yeah. i don't prescribe medication yeah. but um obviously i would work with clients that would be on different medications but the the usual medication is a, a stimulant medication um but there are non-stimulants as well and, and people tend to respond quite well to medication although not everybody does yeah. but those that do you know find the medication you know helpful this is when we say ADHD is highly treatable they will function exactly like somebody who doesn't have ADHD it is it is that good in a sense um but I know that I understand that people not everybody is open to medication but I I will say that people who have come to me with the question about I don't want to take medication when we start to explore that and what the reasons are behind that or you maybe look at some comparisons 
like there's a comparison in the world of um psychology and psychiatry around ADHD which is if you had diabetes you know your body can't produce insulin you would take insulin and there's the same it's the same biological underpinning if you like you know because people with ADHD have lower levels of dopamine as such so the medication is not a band-aid it doesn't just cover things up it actually helps you with the production of that so you can function better your intention is better you can regulate your emotions better you can quieten down that part of the mind that is always on again that's that's a, a whole other fascinating piece is, is around the the continuous thoughts but if medication the continuous can help thoughts it, yeah good or bad thoughts mm-hmm. what are they these continuous thoughts when people go going round the rabbit hole Mm-hmm. over obsessing about things yeah yeah is that what is that what you mean by that yeah exactly so there's an area of the brain called the default mode network and this is the part of the brain that's responsible for helping us think about ourselves so you know when we spoke about the inner critic before the inner worrier the, the, it's this internal world that we have when we think about things ourselves and the world and people with ADHD, that's very active. So it's very difficult to switch that off. So somebody without ADHD yeah. will be able to quieten that at times when they're trying to do a task. I've not got ADHD then because I've not got that. You've not got that no, ability no, no. to turn that off. So that's really hard. Same at night time or how's that for you? Um, no, no, I mean, I've not got an inner critic. Well, I've got an inner critic, but it, it's not very, it's not active. Okay. And you, what you might see is that it's not necessarily inner thoughts that are negative all of the time yeah. it can just be continuous yeah, and no, it's no, no, no. triggered by the external world so no, I'm like oh that's a really nice point oh you're you're you've got glasses over there no, oh no 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 don't do that okay okay yeah that's good yeah well it's great if you can if you can shut that off yeah, right yeah i can, yeah. I can so bring you... myself back into the moment and be yeah. present yeah and not have, have, not have that okay that must be awful that is so debilitating for people. Just not being able to, to switch that off when you need to. So hard. And there's so many things around you that are distracting you and, you know, leading. you kind of led by yeah. the nose almost. It's like, it's just whatever you see is... That tension. That yes, tension, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's really hard. It's difficult in relationships, right? Because yeah. if you have a partner who has ADHD and you maybe neither of you know about it, you get this conflict, right? Like, why aren't you listening to me? Or I told you this just yesterday. Like, what's wrong with you? And then we're triggering all those internal pieces of like, oh, I'm not good enough. Or am I stupid? So if I've not got this internal thing going on, does that mm-hmm. mean I've not got ADHD or can I still have ADHD without that bit? So it's, it is something that we do see a lot right. with ADHD, but actually what you're kind of differentiating between is if it's anxiety, that, that can be very different. So you can have a lot of rumination if it's just anxiety. Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> and this is why it's important. How does anybody know? Well, this is why it's important that you, you you are sitting with someone that can go actually that's more related to anxiety because yeah. you you're you're very you're ruminating and worrying about the future and you're catastrophizing and you're you're panicking and you can't switch that off where adhd is different it doesn't the continuous thoughts are not necessarily fear-based it's the anxiety that is and i think that's why a, a lot of people 
are stuck on this dichotomy of is AD- I have ADHD or I don't and actually it's like you might have ADHD but potentially is there something else at play <laughs> it's just like just so many people talk to me about it yeah. so many people put it on so yeah, I've got mm. you know I think I might have ADHD or that's because I've got ADHD and it's just yeah. like they have not got a fucking clue it's it's really deep it's almost impossible yeah in it to actually yeah. diagnose yeah. yourself it's in, in fact it is impossible yeah and it's um dangerous in a way you know because I, th- I think if someone is trying to make sense of what's going on in their yeah. world like I totally get that and if there is a label out there and a diagnosis out there that can help them to make sense of that then absolutely you know if you can change your narrative change your world better your relationships because you feel something fits for you then yeah I, I do I get that but it's really important not to self-diagnose because you have to have this underpinning and understanding of the different things that can be going on, you know, as part of your world. And the best place to kind of figure all that out is with somebody that has an understanding of that. How big is the what you're saying before about ADHD <coughs> and addiction? You know, it's like you see most addicts with ADHD. Yeah. I think anyone that I, I had worked with... Are they with, almost like self-medicating? To slow the thoughts down. Yeah, so there's sort of this paradoxical, um, this different feeling almost for some people that have ADHD and are using substances. So in particular, cocaine, somebody with ADHD will report a very different feeling when they use cocaine. Because it's a stimulant which is going to counteractive, also more slow the brain down and make everything a little bit more... Absolutely. So people tend to feel like they can chill out. So they're not getting that high. Um, They more so are finding peace, being able to shut things down because it's so busy all the time in their mind and that's so exhausting. Um, But it's incredibly dangerous, you know, to to be self-medicating with cocaine. But a, a lot of people that I've worked with that have maybe come through the channel that may have an addiction to cocaine, they don't realize they have ADHD. And it's only kind of when you start to ask questions like, how how did you feel when you took cocaine? You know, they'll start to say, oh, I've, well, I actually had a lot of clarity or I, I could wind down and I felt more at peace or I was just out of my head and I didn't have to think anymore and it, it felt nice. So when you start to hear those sort of things, sort of raises a flag doesn't it just, you know it's not the the normal or the typical response we would expect somebody to have if they have done cocaine what's your mission with this then what's your sort of mission and vision why is hannah cullen doing this dr hannah cullen doing this i think for me what do you want from this is this your purpose that you've been put on this planet? Do you ever think about <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, I think what, about it all the time. I think about and, and it all what, the time. What, what keeps coming back? I have one client that stands out in my head and I think he sort of brings me back to my core as to why I'm doing what I do. And Tell me, tell me your story. Can you tell me your story? Uh, I'll be mindful right, how okay. I, t- I tell it. I'll be mindful of confidentiality. But um, he was... Um, a young man who was addicted to cocaine 
and um, he didn't realize that he had ADHD. So through like a multidisciplinary team, we were able to figure all of this out and we did incredibly powerful therapeutic work. We did the chair work and he was so brave and he was so courageous and he had children and you know his relationships were extremely difficult because all anybody could see was the addict right they couldn't see anything else that was going on they could just see this selfishness or that they believed he didn't care about them and of course that wasn't true this is probably one of the nicest people I have ever met in my life like ever and he stands out all the time and through his recovery and his commitment to therapy and his understanding of himself and his understanding of this condition, you know, he is years and years now, like, you know, doesn't do drugs, doesn't drink alcohol, understands he has ADHD, takes medication. I think the thing for me is seeing, because I do have the privilege of, we sort of touch base every now and again. So seeing where his life is now in comparison to when he first came to me, like the image I have in my mind of him when he first came to me was like, is this person going to die? Really? He was so ill. He was so ill. And I see where he is now and the father he is to his kids. And I think that's why I do what I do because it's helping a person, reminding them of their worth when they're at rock bottom. And it's intergenerational. The knock-on effect is like, you know, that man has been able to be a better father to his children. And those children are going to go on and, and have better experiences in life because of his commitment to himself and because of the work that we did together. And I think that's what's that's why I do what I do. It's like if I can have that domino effect almost for the next generation, I think that's amazing. Where the hell does that come from? <laughs> Where's it come from, that? Just helping As people to... know the worth is such a powerful thing to mm. say. Hannah. Yeah. It's like, where's it come from, that? I th- it's, I, I, yeah. I mean, most of the stuff that I come up about, like abandonment stuff, is like, I know how people, I don't want people to fend for themselves. I don't want people to feel like they're on their own because I know what it feels to feel like that and I'm not having it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, so mine's come from a kind of trauma. Where has that come from? For me? Yeah. It's, it's actually such a good question. I don't know. I just know that... I love people and I always have and I'm thinking about the interview I had to get onto my doctorate and they asked you know well why do you want to do this like why do you want to sit with people who are in pain and I I think I remember my answer being I just love people and I think I naively potentially I don't know I see the good in everybody before I see anything else that's got me into trouble a few times as well. But I do, I see that and I believe that. And I believe that the person sitting in front of me, if they've got themselves to a point where they're willing to be vulnerable with me, a stranger. It's the weirdest thing in the world is to go into a room with somebody that you don't know and talk about your inner most difficult experiences. It's so brave. 
So I think if somebody has got to that point where they're sat in front of me and they're willing to do that, I see they're good. I believe that people are innately good. And I know that life is difficult for people and circumstances in life don't kind of give the best platform for everybody. And if I can help a person to make changes in their life and make adaptations to make things easier for themselves to bring them back to that place of like, yeah, I am, I am worthwhile or I deserve better than this. And I don't care who's going to tell me otherwise I know I deserve better Then that's, you know, a life mission almost for me, I think. Yes or no, you were a witch in a previous life. <laughs> Basically what I'm saying, because that has come from somewhere. Maybe, maybe. I surely you yeah. must have like thought about that on, a, on like, mm. a, like a real deeper spiritual level. That's next level talking, that, Hannah, you know. Okay. I have this um, memory of um, my mum, actually, at a very young age, and there was um, a homeless man sat outside the bank uh, in Dublin where, where I grew up and I can't remember quite why she was there but anyway we, we were jumping back in the car to drive off and she stopped and she looked out the window and she seen this man and, and he was homeless and she got out of the car and she went into the shop and she bought him a variety of different things and I just watched silently through the window I think I might have been about six or seven I've never told this story before, actually. You're really, you're really bringing this out of me. But I watched her, her compassion and her tenderness with him and her empathy. And I think probably would get that from, from my mum. I think she's somebody that sees the good in everybody. She's nobody's fool. I will say that in case she's listening to this. <laughs> she's nobody's fool, but she, she does see the good in everybody. And she has a heart of gold. And, all, and, and she has come from a really tough background, you know, so she's yeah. got some very hard life lessons in her life. And I think, you know, we learn a lot from from the people that come before us. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe that's this. I remember being quite in awe about that, like, and I've since replicated that, that with my own it's kids. You don't feel like it's that. No. It's a, I, I think it's a, <laughs> look, it goes where you want to go. I think it's a bit more ancestral than that, I'm going to be honest with you. Obviously, your mum's like that because she's had trauma attached and not to hump bringing. Mm-hmm. She probably knows what it likes to feel like that. So that's why she's done it. It's not happening. Absolutely. Where you're like, a bit like Steph, like, like But I think it was perfect. this moment. No, it was this moment of, from a very early age, realising how privileged I was. And as I got older, as in like a young adult and hearing the the hardship and the trauma that my mum has experienced, you know, it, it makes me feel very lucky to have been so loved and protected. But when you know that there's someone in your life that you love dearly who has never had that, that's actually a really hard thing to to be okay with, you know, because like if I could take away my own mother's hurt and pain and trauma oh my god I would and I think when I see how hard she's worked in her life to deal with things that have happened for her um that's really inspirational she's amazing she's amazing yeah she is 
And did you see her going through that pain? Or she talked to you about it? How open are you and your mum talking about things like that? What she went, um, what she went through? It's. A, I think it, I probably wasn't until I was about 20, early 20s, until we started having some real conversations about things that had, you know, been difficult for her and her family growing up. Um, but I definitely knew growing up that there were certain things that maybe were not spoke about potentially, or, you know, I could, my dad comes from a very loving home. Um, and, you know, that it was difficult almost for them to, for my mum to kind of receive love and affection. That was really hard for her. And my dad was very loving and affectionate. So we kind of had this polar opposite. So I, I was, I feel like I, I really witnessed, you know, both sides of life, you know, from, from my parents. And I think seeing that black and white is in like, actually, you know, that must have been incredibly difficult to go through life without feeling safe, you know, as we spoke about earlier, um, for her. So I don't know, I don't know if that's part of what's maybe shaped me to, to getting to where I am and, and working with people to create that sense of safety and give them the validation and, and hear them and just the acknowledgement, you know, is very powerful for clients. Your mission and your vision is so powerful, though, what you're saying, that it, it seems like it can't be that. It feels like it's something that another life that you've led has now let, yeah. as weird as that sounds. No, because like, lots of people are really... Because it's strong, yours. You're, like, yeah. you're so yeah. fucking like that about mm. it, that it's almost like some real something's really mm. bad's happened to you, where mm. you kind of now write no that's not happening I'm, I'm not seeing other mm. people are not feeling like how I felt that's how it feels when you talk okay so I might be totally wrong but oh no you could be I'm actually very open to, <laughs> to have uh, you ever done Reiki or and like I cards have. and stuff what's I been have. presented to you um have you ever had your cards done tarot I've not had my cards done right I have had some um experiences with uh, a medium which was absolutely mind-blowing what did they say what didn't they say I think things that were going on in my life that were very prominent and like that I did not even realize were in the pipeline that literally uh, was just so true things that have happened in the past that were insanely accurate I think when I've had that experience I'm like oh yeah it's got to be something did you talk about past lives we didn't talk about past lives, no. I don't know if that's kind of what she does as such. But um, yeah, I think I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, and I have done Reiki before and find that very, very powerful, very therapeutic. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you like saying that to your clients about these being sort of like com- complementary therapies yeah. to like working with you? So I think you have to gauge your client. I think you have to gauge your client. I think I always find that clients that do have a sense of spirituality, um, that's a really useful tool to heal because to believe in something that is maybe bigger than yourself um, can be a kind of a, bring you a sense of relief. Yeah. And I think if you can pull that into the work, 
there's ways to shift and move clients that it is sort of sometimes a lot easier actually um to do than than you would expect and if people can tap into that that you know there there is there is something there's a bigger picture for me here or this doesn't have to be how I want my life you can tie the spirituality into the psychological work you know it's like okay well okay so you believe that you you are meant for more or you believe that you deserve better than the situation you were in and you believe that like as part of your your higher power your 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 sense of self sort of knows that instinctually so it's like okay how can we use that how can we bring that person through to then think about the behavioral changes that might be blocking them and start to remove those things and and help clients to break old patterns of behavior that are are holding them back because I think sometimes you can have all that belief but if there are things in the way and things you do out of habit that are harming you you have to find a way to change those first and that that's when you can start to see the shift the shift the shift (laughs) what is that shift a frequency shift you feel the vibration Mm. change the mood change the energy the yeah um all of that I think you start to see a couple of sessions where the client is maybe like hmm I don't really know what we're going to talk about today I'm like, okay that's that's potentially a good sign if that's happening at the beginning that's avoidance but if that's happening later down the line it's like okay we're seeing a bit of a shift here this client is not coming in distressed or this client is Uh, like dealing with things that are happening in life much better that actually they may not need that level of therapeutic support quite often I will still check in or have check-in sessions with clients once a month after they've done a long run of sessions and and that's what's difficult about therapy is it's not a quick fix you know I think sadly you know because of the NHS can only offer because they're so strained you know they can only offer very few sessions um to clients I think sometimes it can be maybe six to eight sessions if that client can be seen but you know the research shows that actually you know can take nearly up to 20 22 sessions before you see long-lasting therapeutic changes yeah so it's it's hard for for people you know to to one commit to that length of time but What's also the wait with the nhs if somebody is struggling and they what's it do we talk about that i don't know i don't i mean i think it's um varies depending on what the presentation is for the yeah. client so if it is something more immediate like there's more risk then they potentially will be seen sooner um well yeah the wait list is not something that is acceptable but sadly, it it is the reality. What happens if somebody is like doing avoidance and they come to you and I've got nothing to talk about because I'm I'm not got trauma. I'm fine. Yeah. Where do you start with somebody like that? Well, you don't tend to see that too much unless it's maybe a wife sending a husband <laughs> or a parent sending a child. Right. You know, so it's so important that you're not trying to work with somebody that doesn't want to be there it's not fair is it like you know I'm not gonna poke and prod if somebody is only coming to see me because somebody said so so you've got a problem with something wrong with you yeah that's not fair is it yeah no no, it's not fair and um it's difficult because parents in particular you know they may want 
to get their child support and the child will come but you know more often than not you will win that person over you know and it's it's by validating their experience it's not pretending that they want to be here it's by saying do you want to be here because if you don't that's okay and you don't have to be here if you don't want to and sometimes when you you sort of acknowledge that the person can be like yeah well I'm here now or you know they'll start to trust you and and, and that is the biggest thing is trust if you don't have that in therapy you're wasting your time that therapeutic alliance between the client and the therapist is the most important factor for change so you have to be aligned you have to have this sense of this person's got me or okay I, I feel like I'm in the right place or I feel safe like you need to have that that is witchy that do you think One million percent would you not think it more I mean re- it in the most yeah beautiful sense when I say that okay the alignment, the Reiki, mm. and aligning your energies with that person so they feel safe and stuff. You, obviously, you've got something within you that is not within other people, that just a natural gift that you've got. You know, from when you were younger to being 18 and stuff like that, that you've mm. just got this. The way you talk is so spiritual and so beautiful in a way that everybody's going to feel safe. And for me, that was the, the biggest, I, I just want to feel safe. that's exactly it isn't it that feeling of safety Mm. I think people feel safe in different ways do you understand the gift you've got do you ever look at it and let me ask you this question okay might as well fucking yeah go on (laughs) do you ever look in the mirror and look back at yourself and say I'm really proud of you um do you want the honest answer (laughs) Seen as we're being lie. honest. Let's lie to start off with. I think... Um, yeah, give me the honest answer. The honest answer is, up until probably recent years, yes, I would have. I feel like I have accomplished a lot um, in terms of what I set out I want that I wanted to do. But I think as I've got a bit older now, my priorities have changed and I have children and remember becoming a mother for the first time and thinking oh my god what what am I going to do with all the other stuff that I've been so focused on like the career the drive the competitiveness the the need to kind of continue to achieve like I loved it absolutely loved it and then I became a mother and I was like oh it something felt very different for me like my my job just as I feel about my clients almost is like to make sure that my children are um okay and safe in this world and and by being present and being there for them and I think that feels a little bit different to where I was where the priority was like yeah like I do feel proud of myself I do feel that I've achieved what I set out to do but I get the most I get a, a sense of accomplishment and pride when I look at my kids or when I look at a client who is excelling in life or you know even just the smaller moments for clients when they they have this the shift like what we spoke about that light bulb moment or you feel that yeah that's so rewarding and I and I do feel proud to I, I think privileged is probably a better word to sit with clients and to be able to do that. Um, 
but there's I I think I know I want more in life and I, what I think, is that what is that more in life I think it's something very different to where to where I am I think it's there's been such a focus on the professionalism for me that I think um the personal side of things is you know because I sacrificed a lot right to study for t- 10 years straight yeah um so I think for me I'm I'm at a stage now where I, I want to see and feel the world more and I've I've traveled quite a bit but not to the extent that I want to so I think there's something more like I want to experience more cultures I want to experience people from different walks of life Mm -hmm. um you know maybe it's potentially maybe being bringing this crossover of what I do for a living and and actually what I want to do more so from a personal perspective as well it's like having this which <laughs> yeah or this marrying of the two yeah. almost um so I don't know yeah but I think to answer your question yes I am proud of myself I'm proud of um what I've built at home and I'm proud of what I've built professionally because well, actually, have you ever actually proper looked at yourself in the mirror looking back at yourself and go I'm really proud of you like genuinely look at in your own eyes, back mm-hmm. at yourself. Almost like what you're saying about the chairs, opposite yeah. each, and you're having that conversation. In fact, it's probably the same thing. Yes. But you look in the mirror and you look back straight in your eyes and you, you know what? Fucking really proud of you. So I do the chair work. On your own, <laughs> so just like, sat at home. But I don't need the chairs because I've right. sort of mentally right, okay. like been able to do I this. But there are two chairs going back and forth. Yeah, yeah, no, I literally flip it in my head. I because I'm so well versed on on how to do that yeah when there's moments of doubt in my mind that are, are really holding me back where I'm struggling with something in my life personally I will absolutely do the chair work in my head a hundred percent and I will make sure I do it until I reach a point of self-compassion where I'm like it, it's going to be okay it it will be okay and and I do have strength and I do have resilience and I am being too hard on myself and you get to that point where you want to say, fuck off to the chair that's criticizing you. You're like, enough. Leave me alone. I have a work one as well. So I'm trying to go to sleep at night. What? If I'm trying to go to sleep at night, there's this work voice where it's like, oh, you need to reply to that email. Oh, you need to do this. You need to do that. I'm like, okay, good night. You're keeping me awake. Be quiet. Like I have to silence it because you have to know. How many, how many of them are <clears throat> out there? What's the one where it's called? Is it called Internal Family Systems? IFS, yeah. So quite similar to how I work, actually. So I work from an emotion-focused therapy perspective, which includes this chair work, which is like IFS, which is working with the parts of yourself. Right. So there's a a lot of different parts of myself. Yeah, absolutely. Going on in my head. One is that work one that comes in, says, Mm -hmm. what about that email? And you go... So it's normally a worrier, right? So that's normally like, oh, if you don't reply to that email, something really bad is going to happen or that person's going to think you're unprofessional and then you're not going to get the job. And oh my God, maybe you should just get out of bed now and write that email. That's the inner worrier. Yeah. Yeah. So usually the inner worrier is worrying you, the real self. Yeah. And panicking you. It's not productive at all, is it? Because you just feel this sense of panic. So you need to find ways to be able to push that back. You need to be find ways to talk back to that side and say, 
I this isn't helping. What am I talking back to? Am I talking back to him compassionately, like lovingly? Or no. does each <laughs> So when you first respond to that side, you have to first understand what it's doing to you. So you have to acknowledge that actually this is really difficult. What that side is doing to me internally is filling me full of dread, filling me full of shame, filling me full of embarrassment and hurt. And actually it's holding me back. So when you start to acknowledge what that voice is doing. How it's making me feel. How how it makes you feel. Yeah. What's the impact of that? What's the sense inside your body when you hear that voice criticizing you or worrying you? And actually for most people, they get angry at it. And that's called assertiveness. It's self-assertiveness. It's like, this isn't okay. This isn't okay what I what that voice is telling me or what so it's you're doing. Talking, no, I'm not getting angry. I'm just being assertive. I'm just going to listen. Mm-hmm. It's two types of anger. Not admin. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Two types of anger. So there's rejecting anger, which is... Yeah, I've done that a lot. Yeah, so it's like the, the blaming, the... <sighs> yeah, not yes, bad. yeah. So it's rejecting anger. Assertive anger is different. It's recognizing that actually there's a boundary that's being crossed and that's not okay. So assertive anger is... I've had enough. So is it of unemotional this? assertive anger? Unemotional, did you say? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a kind of like not getting with assertive anger when I'm saying this. Am I not getting emotional with it? No, I think it is definitely an emotion. But not. I think when you say an emotional reaction. Yes, yeah. It's a very clear understanding that actually what's happening is not okay, and you're not okay with it. And assertive anger, expressing assertive anger, is vocalizing that and articulating that since this needs to stop I'm not okay with this you are pushing me too far or I am hurting inside because of the words you're telling me this needs to stop it's just the way you say things it's just like shit so that's the coaching yeah yeah it's that's the coaching so that's the side of things that I do as as a, a psychologist and a therapist with the client is is coaching them through those stages so we start with this evoking the live emotion, the kind of feelings of sadness or shame. Yeah. And then what happens is we try to evoke the assertive anger. And when you push that back, when the assertive anger is like, no, this is not okay, the client starts to feel a bit more empowered. The balance shifts. So it's not the inner internal voice that's... feel more in control. Yes. As in like, that. that's not me. That voice is not me. That, that voice is... Quite often, you'll find that that voice is trying to be somewhat protective, but it's just doing it all the wrong ways. So we have to figure out this split between the two. We have to figure out a way how to manage that, which is like, this is not okay. When you ask the client, what do you need from that side? What do you need that side to do? Normally, they'll say like, I just, I need a break or I need it to go away. Or sometimes it can be, something which I always find is very powerful like I need it to be on my side I need it to stop worrying me and panicking me I need it to be on my side because I don't trust myself when that voice is telling me I'm constantly wrong I need it to stop Mm. does anybody ever say they want an apology from it absolutely apology is a big part of the process because that is self-love and self-compassion. 
So when you move them through the chair work, that inner critic, sometimes it softens. And it's like, well, I'm not trying to hurt you. I just want to remind you to do all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you don't, your world's going to fall apart. So it's my job to criticize you and remind you. I'm just protecting you from 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 insecurity. Exactly. Yeah. It's like there's a form of protection. There's a layer of protection, but it's it's from the wrong. The wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Goes right. Goes right back to what we spoke about in the beginning about the critical parent. Yeah. How actually sometimes when you have a critical parent, they're not trying to hurt you or harm you. They're just doing it from like, trying to protect to you. Before I don't want it to happen to you. Yeah, trying to protect you. Mm-hmm. How do how, how do parents kind of stop that on the kids that they've been through some and they, they are overprotective? Because I feel that, mm. you know, they're wrapping I mean cotton wool and they're not giving letting the hardships of life teach them. How do they stop being over- reiterating yeah, that pattern yeah, yeah, almost? Yeah. yeah, I think intergenerational trauma is something that we talk about a lot, which is like what we pass down from generation to generation, how we were raised as such, you know, is may impact how we then go on to raise our children. But I think self-discovery and self-awareness are really important, especially when you become a parent, because you you sort of have these, you can have these expectations of your children. What did you find out about yourself when you became a mum? I realised how anxious I was as a parent, um, that I've probably carried that through. So everything was about being careful, make sure nothing bad happens, make sure no one has an accident, make sure nobody does this. And I I couldn't do it anymore. I I was like, oh my God, I I remember this point where I think my son was about two at the time. And he was running down the road. And I couldn't enjoy it, right? Because all I could hear myself was saying, oh, be careful, be careful, be careful, don't fall, don't fall. And he would stop. And it got to a point where he would not get on a small wall because he was nervous. And I realized at that point, I'm doing this. Like I am actually causing him to feel like actually taking risks is a problem. You know, it's a calculated risk, right? It's, I'll hold your hand along the wall. And I, I I think that stems back from, you know, say my parents about being cautious and being careful. Um, but I, I was able to change that. But it is the self-awareness. It's realizing, you know, well, actually not every other parent is doing that or other parents feel very free at, you know, letting their children explore and roam. Why is it really difficult for me? Um, and thankfully, that is something that's changed. How have you? How did you change that? Just by doing being very aware of when I would say, "Be careful," like when he didn't need to be. <laughs> what you're just having a, a quiet word with yourself, yeah, in like, your head. Yeah, or I would say, "Oh, be careful," Are you kind and of then going I would to that change it. Saying, "Quiet, that's not serving me right now." Or are you just being? What 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 thought goes in your head when that happens? So quite often, I will still do the behaviour, like, yeah. "Oh, be careful." And then I will retract it because I've caught myself saying it. So I might say, oh, be careful. Oh, actually, look, you're doing a great job there. Keep going. So I'm like, right, okay, I've, I've fixed that. Um, and now I'm I've my second son and I, I don't do it at all. I don't, I very rarely do it unless actually there is what, some still, risk. Are you still hurting inside? Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, be oh, yeah. careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm will that never that. change that side of you? Um. 
I mean, touch wood, so far so good with, with them. So I think having good experiences, you know, that there right, hasn't been any... We confirm to you that it, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, that, it, that it is okay. And we have had accidents. Like, we've, of course, we've had their kids, aren't they? You know, yeah. we've had bloody noses. We've had bashed heads. We've had all, all of those things that come with it. But I think I've learned to regulate. A lot of it is the feeling inside. That's why we want things to everything to just be okay because actually the feeling we get in response to that is really difficult so if my child hurts himself oh gosh the feeling I have inside is guilt it's your fault I let him oh yeah just feeling their pain and it's like Uh, so uncomfortable and so difficult to deal with that you just want to do anything to avoid that situation happening so you just make sure you try to you start to avoid um, so a lot of it is about self-awareness and understanding or thinking about, you know, for anyone else who's listening, who's, who's parenting, hardest job in the world. So, so hard. And, you know, I'm, I think I'm yet to meet a person, you know, who even the most perfect parents who get it all right still get it wrong you know there's 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 a thing called like the too good mother you know it's this piece around trying to do everything right all of the time and actually you know you, you simply can't you can't it's really it's a really difficult job where can people find you how can they book in for a one-to-one with you how does yeah. it work when like, what did you do one-to-ones how did people yeah book yeah in with you? yeah so i do deliver one-to-one sessions so I like to give clients that time. I like to bring that relationship up to a place where there's trust um, so that they come back and they want to come back and they feel safe to explore. So one-to-one sessions are largely a big part of my work, but I am going to be opening up to like a larger platform, I think in particular around ADHD, because I, I think the biggest thing for me is seeing that people are sourcing their information for ADHD on social media and that's a dangerous game you know um i think there was a there was a research paper done on 100 of the most watched videos on tiktok for adhd and over 50 percent of them were deemed misleading and i think 27 percent of them were just people talking from personal experience again which can you know not be great for for people to source their information from um i think the most useful information that came from the videos were people that were like healthcare providers they had the most accurate information but you know for over 50 percent of the videos watched on adhd to be misleading that's a lot of people going around with with the wrong information you know so i think for me that's the next part for me is like I want to open this platform that if people have questions, if I can answer them or I can help them or I can point them in the right direction, which is why I wanted to come do this here with you is because it's hard. It's very hard for people to access professionals, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's costly for a start and, and, you know, time is, is difficult for people. So if there's a platform that we can share that information, then fantastic. So I think that's something that I'm definitely going to be doing. Um, but yeah, normally what I offer is a discovery call. So if someone wants to work with me, we can have a chat, you know, it's usually 15, 20 minutes just to chat to kind of figure out if I'm the right fit for them. And you know, if, if they want to start the work with me, what it entails and we go from there. Where do we go to find get this discovery is there a website yeah so i do have a website (laughs) i need you to take a look of that yeah Yeah, um i do have a website so um 
maybe we could put it up yeah, we'll put it in as well yeah um and yeah there's there's information there but you know they can just drop me an what email www.drhannacullen.co.uk yeah um everybody follow Dr. Hannah Cullen on Instagram. Yes, well. Instagram's great, yeah. actually. You need to amplify that. You need to get your message out there more, yes. more videos. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know you, you definitely mentioned that to me, and I think that's that's so... It's important, this message you're delivering. It's yeah. It's going to have a lot of impact. Yeah. Big, big yeah. impact. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, Instagram is a, is a great way for, you know, there's quite a few people that would follow me that yeah. we'd still have you know, small chats inside and outside yeah. of videos, which are, which is great because you're building that sense of community. Yeah. And actually I really like, um, the audience and the community on my Instagram page. I think that's great because getting a sense of how I work as well yeah. is important. You know, it's not, yeah, you as a person, you yeah, as a brand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think people tend to think that, you know, if they go to a psychologist, it's, it's extremely clinical and cold, you know, and that's absolutely not the case. Um, certainly for me anyway bringing me to the relationship is vital I want to have a real relationship I want to have a real therapeutic relationship with the client like you know it needs to be genuine and you can't really do that unless you're bringing part of your you know yourself and you're being authentic in the relationship so that's really important do you truly understand the gift you've got um yeah I know how powerful what I do is and can be I do know that and I know that I've worked with a lot of people that have had great outcomes and you know are very thankful and very grateful um but yeah I think yeah, I don't I don't maybe I'm just putting the houses again because <laughs> you've asked me twice I mean is it a gift or is it learned I think people are my gift I think connecting with people yeah. naturally inside and out like I couldn't sit in the back of a taxi and not know everything about the taxi man inside 15 minutes like so connecting with people I think that's definitely one of my strengths or as you might say gift I don't know why I'm pushing it down as not a gift but that's yeah 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 exactly okay I will I will own that I will own that I think one of my gifts one of my many gifts yeah. is connecting with um with people and if I can make that meaningful... On a, on a deeper level than a lot yeah. of other people. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to know that. I want to go there. Yeah, I know, I can do, tell. Do I can you? tell when you say it, yeah. yeah. I can tell when you yeah. say it. Not everybody's like that. Yeah. you just like, you've got a way about yeah. you that gets, that gets to that level a lot quicker mm. than other people. I would agree with that, yeah. I, yeah. They, do you know what I have learned? Is it's also a skill to learn how to stay up at that level. Because actually, you have to be really careful not to deepen everything for everybody all of the time. Yeah. And when you're naturally inclined to do that, the skill set is actually learning how to stay up here yeah. and yeah. do the small talk. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, the small talk's boring. I hate that. Yeah, no, yeah not a small talk either. <laughs> Thank you, mate. I appreciate you. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. I've honestly been really looking forward to it. And, um, yeah. You I've did make me been... nervous at first, weren't you? I'm just like, fucking, I'm going to start you fucking, I couldn't shut you up. I know, you do. It's like, so obvious. You're you like telling me to write on the board. I'm like, no. <laughs> what did we say we were putting on the board? You have to go there to we, leave there. To, yeah, yeah. 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 Thank you for listening, everybody. Goodbye.